You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, we continued our reboot of the Church Word series with our next word, glory. Let's get right into it. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It is great to be able to come and see you. And also, uh, today, as well as the past few weeks, I've had a chance to meet a number of new people that are coming and uh, hanging out at the church. So hopefully, uh, if you are visiting, that this has been a great morning so far that you've come, been refreshed, it's been encouraging to you. Uh, if you have kids in kids' ministry, I promise they are having an amazing time. So just big, massive welcome to anyone that may be coming and hanging out with us for the first, second, or third time. Wonderful to see you. Uh, but as was mentioned on the video. We're continuing, and today is, in fact, the last week that we're going to be looking at uh, a series we've called Church Words. It's something we started last summer. Uh, We spent six weeks looking at six different words that typically only come up in either the Bible or a church context or a conversation around faith. And we kind of looked at the individual words to see if we can kind of fill in the gaps a little bit to sort of gain some understanding and grow in some comprehension and some understanding and hopefully something helpful has come out of this. And I know I've enjoyed this as uh, I've been preparing. And so this is the third week of kind of the reboot of that series, which brings the series total to nine. And this week we'll be looking at the word glory. Now glory is of course a word that will come up in everyday conversation, typically talking about uh, a victory or success or something like that. And if you do a search of the word glory in your Bible, so I use um, biblegateway.com, which is a very easy way to do that. Or if I know a number of us are using the Bible app as well. If you just do a search of the word glory, you'll get hundreds, over 300 uh, results of the times in the Bible the word glory is used, both Old Testament and New Testament, over 300 times. So there's any number of ways we could look at this word today, any number of focuses and emphasis that we could have on this. And hopefully, I've got something helpful that's going to be shared to this morning. Um, But we are going to cover a lot of ground. Are we okay to cover a lot of ground this morning? There was some hesitation there. I I really hope this is okay. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to dig into a lot of Bible. So um, if the pews had seatbelts, I'd say put it on. Megan, put that in my good idea folder. Okay. But I want to start by reading. This is a definition that I read of the word glory or part of the definition I read uh, in a dictionary this week. The glory of God is such that if it could be taken away, then he would no longer be God. Human glory, wealth, success, reputation, etc., may be taken from us, but it doesn't affect our humanity. But God cannot be God without His glory. For this reason, He is jealous about it. People must not infringe upon it. The intention of God is that humanity and all creation should give glory to Him, meaning we acknowledge the glory He has and respond accordingly. We must not seek glory in our wisdom, strength, success, or riches, but rather in our relationship with the Lord. Those who boast must boast of the Lord from 1 Corinthians. This is well summed up in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God. We must not try to take the glory that belongs to God alone. And that's from the Dictionary of Theological Terms. But over the last few years, I've read a number of people objecting to Christian faith and objecting to God and and the idea that we need to be devoted to Him and give glory to Him and give worship to Him and this question about why does the creator of the universe require that people give Him worship? Why does the God of the universe require that people give Him devotion? And it's an interesting objection, the, the idea that the creator of the universe would command people to give Him worship and Him alone. And I've read this a number of times, this objection from people that don't share our faith and don't believe that the God of the Bible is worth devotion 
devoting our lives to, we'd say, well, why is God asking us for this glory? And it's an interesting objection, and there's a type of understanding that we all have in our human relationships that helps fill this out a little. We see this in the home. The way that a healthy home runs is that kids recognize their kids, and parents recognize they're leading the home. There's many problems that come when kids forget that parents are in charge, and they start to think that they are in charge. And without mentioning names, one of our three kids seems to think that he is a third party in the parenting decision-making process in our house. I will not mention names, but he likes to boss around his siblings. He thinks he has a vote when it comes to parental decisions. Often, the directions that we give to the other kids are for the other kids and not for him. And oftentimes, he needs reminding, and we say this often in our house, is that things will go better if you do what I say. The kid's role in a family, and I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for us, the kid's role is to take that seriously. Things will go better for me as a kid in this house if I let mom and dad be mom and dad. If I remember my job is to be good kid, their job is to be parents and to run things and lead the house. It goes better when parents realize, you kid, you do what I say, I'm bigger than you. That's how the healthy home runs. And of course, we don't expect kids to worship their parents, that's certainly not what I'm trying to say, but that human dynamic does teach us something about how worship and devotion and glory to God works. It goes better when we recognize we people, we created, He's God, He's Almighty, He's on high, He is worthy of praise, He is worthy of glory, He is worthy of devotion. It goes better that same way that a healthy household runs best when parents are parents leading the home, kids are kids submitted to parents, listening to parents, honoring their parents. That runs better in a healthy household. Same way in human life, it goes better when we put God first. And the best definition that I could come up with for the word glory after looking through a number of dictionaries and looking around it this week and spending a lot of time considering this is a glory is the observable qualities that demonstrate God's unique significance, power, splendor, and superiority. Glory is the observable qualities that demonstrate God's unique significance, power, splendor, and superiority. And preparing this week and reading around the topic and considering all that the Bible has to teach about this, I was never comfortable with the definition that I wrote down until I added that first bit about the observable qualities. There's something about the glory of God is observable. It's something that we can see, that we can experience, something that we can relate to. From Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. And here's another one from Exodus. This is just as Moses is getting ready to lead the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. God speaking, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed. It's observable through Pharaoh and his troops, his charioteers, uh, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. The glory of the Lord is observable. It is seen and experienced. Now, as we'll read in just a moment, it's not fully seen and it's not fully experienced. Similarly, it's like a, a great artist showing one of their paintings. That one painting it doesn't show all their ability or all their talents. It just it showcases this is how talented they are. 
a soccer player seeing one goal on the highlight reel doesn't show all their talent and all their capabilities, but it just showcases this is, this is an indication of their talent. If we're looking at a, a, a musician, one song, one performance doesn't showcase the full breadth of their talent and their skills. And in the same way, when we get a glimpse of the glory of God, it's not his full majesty. It's not the full picture of all his goodness and all his glory and all his wonder. But it's a strong indication to us of how wonderful, powerful, supreme he really is. The challenge for you and me will be to stay amazed at his glory. That is the challenge of believers, is to stay in wonder and enamored with how incredible God is. That will always be our challenge. Now, if you're anything like me, it's been a while that you have thanked God for fresh air. I, I can't remember if this has ever happened. In fact, this past week, I've complained a lot about the air. It's been too cold. It's been blowing too fast. It warmed up for a little bit, then went cold again, like a tease. But I need fresh air to live. You need fresh air to live. My family needs fresh air to live. And yet I take it for granted every single day. I don't remember the last time I thanked God for it. Similarly, water, having access to fresh water. I counted this morning, just out of curiosity, there are seven faucets in my house. That's not including the spigots outside. Seven faucets in my house with access to fresh, clean water that I need to survive. I had a conversation this week with somebody from Convoy of Hope. If you're new to the church, Convoy of Hope is a missions organization that we've had a long-term partnership here with the church. They're doing wonderful work all over the world, including the Ukraine right now, by the way. They're doing wonderful work all over the world. And I heard in this conversation as we're getting ready to launch One Day to Feed the World for this year, the conversation came up that there are still 800 million people around the world that do not have access to clean water. Meanwhile, I've got seven faucets in my house. When was the last time I thanked God for clean water? It's easy to take these things for granted. And unfortunately, it is shockingly easy to take the glory of God for granted. And failing to appreciate the glory of God will compromise our ability to follow him. The challenge will always be to stay amazed at his glory and to keep God's first. To not take God's significance, his power, his splendor, and his superiority for granted, like we often do with fresh air and clean water. Now, possibly the most famous verse in the Bible that addresses the glory of God is this one from the book of Romans, Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Other translations will say we all fall short of the glory of God. And if we were going to paraphrase that verse, it could read like this. Everyone has sinned and is disqualified from experiencing God's unique significance, power, splendor, and superiority. Before Adam and Eve sinned, all the way back in Genesis, they experienced a relationship with God that was unaffected by sin. But ever since, sin has entered into creation and none of us can claim perfection, which means we've all fallen short of the standard. The Amplified Bible, which I like to use sometimes as a reference, the Amplified transit this way, that we continually fall short. If it's not bad enough that we have fallen short, it's worse because we keep falling short. But the reason the message of Jesus is so wonderful, the reason the message of Jesus is life-changing, because this blunt confrontational reality from Romans is not the end of the story. Now the word glory, if you to look it up and in the Hebrew and even into the Greek, you'd start to see that the root of the word is the same word that you get for the word weight. This idea of something heavy, 
This idea of something that is, is heavy and hefty. And so even in Genesis, there's, it talks about Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. They're all described as having a kind of weight because of the position of wealth and strong social status that they had. And we still use this turn of phrase today. In conversation, we'll say that someone's opinion carries weight. We'll talk about someone being a big deal or even someone being a high flyer. We'll describe someone as being larger than life. And it's this same idea about you know, describing the, the role that people have in our lives, about it being heavy, about it being big, about it being large. That idea of something being, you know, having a weight to it. It's a way of communicating the significance and importance of somebody. And we can see the importance of this in the Ten Commandments. And I want to read the first two of the Ten Commandments with you today. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. You must have no other God but me. That's commandment one of the Ten Commandments, which very well-known portion of the Bible. The first commandment, you must not have any other God but me. Verse four, this is the second of the Ten Commandments. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now, the first commandment makes it clear. No messing around. There's no gray area about this. You cannot worship, you cannot give glory to any other so-called God or anything else but me. Me and me alone. It's back to this idea of parenting. If this is going to go well, kids, you need to treat parents like parents. You need to recognize your role as kids. If this is going to go well for you, Israelites, thousands of years ago, if this is going to go well, you need to put me first and me and me alone. That's the first commandment. But the second commandment, do not make an idol or image of anything. Now, idols, especially back then, were a visual representation of what people worshipped. And God had already made it clear that they were to worship him and him alone, nothing else. That's the first commandment. But here we see, don't make an image or representation of God to be the focus of your worship. And what does all that mean? What's the significance of all that? Well, what I want to put to you is the significance of this, especially if you think about the glory of God today is don't reduce God to a human creation. Don't limit him. Don't contain God in a representation or an idol that you can make in your attempt to try and worship him. Don't shrink him to something created that you can worship so that you can feel more comfortable about worship. And that may seem strange to us because we generally don't make statues and worship statues anymore. But if we did, we're told here, by doing this, you are shrinking God to something you can create. It's reducing God to a human creation. We're commanded, do not shrink God into an idol or representation, no matter how magnificent it may be. There is nothing in heaven or on earth or in the sea that can accurately showcase God's glory appropriately. The glory of God cannot be reduced to human understanding. The glory of God cannot be shrunken down, cannot be reduced, it cannot be minimized. It's too magnificent for that. There is nothing you or I can do. There is nothing that we can create. There's nothing that the greatest artist can create that can accurately encapsulate all of God's glory and the attempt to do so will result in us underappreciating how wonderful he is. The glory of God cannot be reduced to human understanding. As I mentioned, the word glory appears over 300 times in the Bible, and I want to spend some time and look at three moments in the Old Testament where we see God's glory on display, and then we're going to look at something in the New Testament that I hope will bring some understanding and something helpful. But the first thing is from the book of Exodus, back in the book of Exodus, look at an incident in the life of Moses. 
One day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name. I look favorably on you. If this is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways. This is Moses talking. So I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How can anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I have looked favorably on you, and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live." The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Fascinating story in the life of Moses. And it illustrates the gap between humanity and God. Now Moses, if you know the Old Testament well, you'll know that Moses is just about the greatest hero of the Old Testament. Moses is an incredible man. God used him in very unique, powerful ways. Moses, true hero. If Moses, one of the greats of the Old Testament, could only see a fraction of God's glory, was not able to see God's glory in its fullness, what chance do the rest of us have? It's also interesting to note that the first encounter Moses had with God at the burning bush, Moses' reaction was fear and trembling. And yet years later, after having formed an extremely close relationship with God, having gone through some amazing uh, incidents with the Lord, now he wants to know God more. And what should we take from this moment? About Moses asking, God, I want to know you more. I want to see more of your glory. And God saying, well, you can see more of my glory than you'd expect, but you can't see it all. What should we take from that? It teaches us about the gap between humanity and God. The level of perfection, the level of power and significance of splendor of God is so huge that if we were to experience it, we couldn't survive. We couldn't even survive, that's what we just read. No one can see me and live. No one can see, experience the fullness of my glory and survive. It's like getting too close to the sun. You cannot get too close, you cannot survive. You can only see a glimpse so that you can see something in his. We definitely cannot compete with this. This is, it just, it illustrates to us how incredible God is compared to us. He is far and above us. And it makes the suggestion of trying to create a representation of God is the suggestion of trying to break the second commandment and make an idol, a representation of God even more pathetic. To try and contain his majesty in a statue or an idol, it's so inadequate. To try and shrink God down to our level, it's impossible when we remember that Moses, the best of the best, couldn't even survive an encounter with God's glory in its fullness. It was um, a little while ago now, but I taught my kids what a Googleplex was. Now, some of you may be asking, what is a Googleplex? Uh, I only know this because I stumbled upon a YouTube video. It's not because I'm a genius. You didn't have to laugh. I mean, that was, anyway. 
I, it's not because I'm a genius, but I stumbled across a YouTube video where it taught that a Googleplex is the biggest number that exists. Infinity technically is not a number, it's sort of a concept, it's a theory, but a Googleplex is actually a definitive number and they've kind of, all the, you know, the boffins have got together and kind of, you know, done a spit shake and agreed that this is the biggest number, okay, we won't go beyond this. And it came out of, there was somebody invented, uh, or some, somebody con conceived, should we say, the idea of a Google. Now that's where the company got the name from, it's not named after the company, but a Google is one with a hundred zeros. So that's a Google. And then somebody decided that the biggest number is gonna be a Googleplex, which is one with a Google zeros. Everyone tracking with me so far? The video makes it seem so clear and easy to understand, I promise, but that's a Googleplex, is one with a Google of zeros. It's such a big number that in the known universe, there's less than a Googleplex particles. That's how vast the number is. One day the kids asked me, Dad, what's the biggest number? So I just said, it's a Googleplex. What's a Googleplex? And ever since that question, the questions have not stopped. <laughs> Reason being, there's no frame of reference. The number is so big, this happened, I, I promise I'm not exaggerating. I wrote this down in my notes sometime last week, just yesterday, Elijah was asking me what's the number before Googleplex. Like I'm telling you, this, and I first told this to them years ago, this concept is weighing on their minds. But anyway, it's such a vast number, it's so big, it doesn't really have any bearing to us. There's no point of reference. There's no way for us to make sense of any of it. The kids have asked me how long would it take you to count to Googleplex? I don't even know, I, so long. There's no concept of how long it's gonna take. It's such a vast number. It's so huge. But the kids wanted to shrink it down to their level of understanding. The kids wanna give it a frame of reference. They wanna feel comfortable with being able to get a grasp on what the biggest number is. They want it to make sense to them. As believers, a challenge that we have is being comfortable with not being able to grasp the vastness of God. He knows the hairs on each of our heads. Just the people in this room, that should freak us out. And when you keep in mind that it's all the people the world over. Dust in the desert, sand on the seashore. He knows it all. And he still has room for more. That vastness, we have no frame of reference for it. We have no way of making sense of how huge God is. In the way my kids have no way of grasping what a Googleplex really means, because it's so big, we have no way of grasping the majesty of God. The glory of God cannot be reduced to human understanding. Let me go on to another example, this time from the life of Solomon. First Kings, starting at the end of chapter 7. So King Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of all the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families and the Israelites. They were to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before King Solomon at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early autumn in the month of Ethanim. When all the elders of Israel arrived, the priests picked up the ark. 
The priests and Levites brought up the ark of the Lord along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it. There, before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. Then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place, which is in front of the most holy place, but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai, where the Lord made covenant with the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Let me read that last verse again. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The glory of God filled the temple. The priests could not continue their service because of the glory of God, the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And something similar also happened when Moses dedicated the tabernacle. And it's part of the promise of God, if you know the promises of God from the Bible, that he will dwell with his people, that his presence will dwell among his people. And the Old Testament, God designed that that would be limited, that would be confined to the tabernacle and later the temple. And all this was to help you and I, it was to help New Testament believers understand the wonder of God's glory and the significance of Jesus' accomplishment on the cross. And this is from Matthew's gospel. The moment that Jesus died, it says this in Matthew 27, 51. At that moment, this is as Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. Now, the curtain that was torn as Jesus was on the cross and as he died and as he breathed his last, the curtain that was torn, it was the curtain that closed off the entrance to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place that we just read about. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept that we just read about from the account of Solomon. But I got this from a book I read this week. They say it way better than I could. The 60-foot-high curtain was split from top to bottom. A curtain, massive thing, 60-foot high, which is a sign that God himself abolished the separation from the Holy of Holies, signifying that the new and living way is now open for all people to enter into his presence through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The curtain being torn is a display that the precious, rare, and wonderful moments of God's glory being experienced are no longer contained and limited, but are readily available. I had a wonderful example of this. A number of years ago, while we were pastoring in Montana, I was youth pastor, and Megan was the worship pastor at our church. And uh, I prepared a message, and we had youth on Sunday nights back then, and I prepared a message, and I knew that the subject that we were covering and the nature of the message, it, it needed to have worship at the end of the message. There needed to be some kind of invitation for these students to respond, and we needed to have worship there because that would really just help create this atmosphere for students to respond appropriately to, you know, what I was hoping to share and what was hopefully going to be something life-changing for these guys. And I asked Megan if she could come, but Megan wasn't able to come. We weren't able to get anyone to watch the kids, and so, you know, Megan couldn't come. And then I asked one of the other sort of team members in the church if they could come and lead worship, and they couldn't do it. And so I was like, fine. And so I'm going to church, and I, I'm getting all of my notes ready, and I'm kind of at the equivalent of the sound desk. Everyone wave to Josh. He loves attention. 
So I'm kind of at our equivalent. It was a much smaller church, but I'm kind of back there in the sound booth area, and I'm working on a computer, getting the notes ready for go on the screen and all the kind of stuff, and I've got a chip on my shoulder because I want to have worship, and I'm not able to get worship at the church, and I'm all annoyed about it, and nobody knows that I'm back there, and so two of the young girls from the youth group, they just kind of wander in and come up on stage. They have no idea that I'm back there, and one of them uh, is a vocalist and a singer, and she does a good job. The other one is not a musician, not a vocalist, but evidently she was feeling brave that day. And so they sat at the piano, and the girl who's not a vocalist, not a musician, with one hand played, um, is, is an old uh, battle song, Break Every Chain. And so with one hand, she like plonked along, break every chain, you know, I don't know how it goes, I'm not a musician either, but it's this, you know, break every chain. And it just goes, and it goes, and so I'm sat there, and I'm getting ready, and I'm all annoyed because I can't have worship at the end of youth, and so I was like, this is better than nothing. Like, one-handed piano playing, terribly, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. And so this is better than nothing. So I was like, called out, I was like, hey, can you do this after youth? And the two girls are like, I guess. So sure enough, youth happens. I get up, I preach, I can't even remember what it is that I shared that, well, you know, I was so convinced was life-changing. But I shared what I was going to share, and then I invited these two girls to come and lead the youth ministry and worship, and sure enough, they sit at the piano and plonked along, you know, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and they sort of sing the song. An hour and a half later, we're still there, because the glory of God showed up in that room. With, if one person claps, you'll have to. I don't have explanation for it. I couldn't give a defined theology around it. All I know is that these two girls got up and with one hand, one girl on a piano that could not play at all, plunk, 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 dun, 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 something happened. I don't have explanation for it. I cannot articulate what happened. All I know is that the glory of God showed up in that room. And trying to be a responsible youth pastor, I would get up at the moment that we're supposed to finish and I would routinely say, if you need to go, if you got curfew, if mom's dad's waiting for you outside, if you've got homework to do, you need to get out of here. We're officially released, you guys can go. No one left. They wanted to stay and enjoy and be a part of the presence of God. And that is what comes to mind whenever I read that account from the book of Solomon. Can't, can't, the priest couldn't do their priestly things. All bets are off. Because one teenage girl just plunk, 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 plunk. And a buddy sang along. Glory of God fell in that place. The glory of God fell. I don't ever want to take this for granted. I don't ever want to cheapen the presence of God. I don't ever want to treat it the way that I treat fresh air or I treat clean water. I want to have value on the presence of God. It's interesting in economics, I'm certainly not an economist, but I do know that scarcity and demand determine something's value. And for New Testament believers, it will be an ongoing challenge to value something so highly when it is so readily available. It's an important discipline for believers to reflect on how precious the presence of God is. I would even say a key portion of our prayer time should be acknowledging the majesty and splendor of God, not simply us bringing requests to Him, but honoring how wonderful He is, how indescribable His glory is, thanking Him for His presence being evident in our lives. The glory of God is invaluable. The glory of God is invaluable. 
To be invaluable means it's we're unable to ascribe a worth or value to it. It's in the same realm as do not build an idol. There's no way to calculate the worth of God's glory. There's no measurement. There's no comparison. It is freely accessible because the curtain was torn. It's readily available, but that doesn't mean it's cheap and it doesn't lessen its value. The glory of God is invaluable. The third moment I wanted to bring to your attention is from the book of Isaiah. I'm told with, well, Pastor Randy told me directly. This was his favorite Bible verse. Isaiah 6, starting verse 1. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And tending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's over. This is Isaiah speaking. It's over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king. I have experienced the glory of God, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. And the amazement and the power that's on display for Isaiah meant it led to repentance. It wasn't God's anger, it was his glory that brought Isaiah to a point of, I need to change. I can't keep going how I've been going. I've got problems in my life, I've got things I need to address. Remember the verse we shared earlier from Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. This encounter for Isaiah made him extremely aware that he has fallen short. He is not worthy. But then we also see God helping him get cleaned up and get ready to go. The glory of God changes us. The glory of God changes us. And this is why in churches all over the world, you'll have one person that's been faithful since childhood, sat next to somebody that got saved in prison, sat next to somebody that abandoned their faith as teenagers, but they're starting to get it back together again. Sat next to people that are unsure about what they even think about this whole Jesus thing. Sat next to someone else that's fighting an addiction. Sat next to someone else that's found great success in life and is faithful in their faith. Sat next to somebody that is an absolute mess. The church has people with all kinds of starting points in their relationship with God. What we all have in common is that we do not deserve the goodness of God, but he makes it readily available to us. We do not deserve forgiveness, but he gives it anyway. We don't deserve a second chance, but he gives a second, third, fourth, fifth, 108th, 9,007th, Googleplex second chance. This is what the church has in common. The church all over the world, we have different starting points. We have different stories. And we're here because we came to that same realization of Isaiah. I don't deserve the goodness of God. And in which God says, but I'm gonna give you it anyway. Churches all across the world is filled with people that have come to that moment and have realized that the glory of God changes us. These moments from Moses, Solomon, the temple, Isaiah, it should build our appreciation for the glory of God. For Moses, it was too amazing to fully experience because God is far greater, far above, far more holy, far more perfect than we can even handle. 
And it's a warning to us that we shouldn't try and shrink and minimize the glory and the splendor of God. Solomon, that the presence of God that was so powerful in the temple that day, it stopped the priest working. It's amazing that it's now so readily available for you and for I. It's not a comment on how cheap the presence of God is just because it is readily available to all of us, but it is precious. And it's an important discipline for believers to keep treating that presence of God as precious. And for Isaiah, encountering the glory of God led to repentance, that a transformation happens when we focus on God, not ourselves. Our own unworthiness starts to get cleaned up when we get a glimpse of his absolute perfection. And for Isaiah, if you know the rest of the book, he did change, he did transform, and he went on to be a great hero of the Bible. Here's another dictionary that I came across this week for another quote that I thought was helpful. When God's presence literally appears on the earth, it is usually described as the glory of the Lord. Thus, for example, when the presence of God comes and fills the temple, it is called the glory of the Lord. Likewise, when the Ark of the Covenant is lost, the Israelites declare, the glory has departed. After Solomon completes the construction of the temple, the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Thus, the glory of the Lord refers to God's indwelling presence in the midst of his people. The glory of the Lord refers to God's indwelling presence in the midst of his people. And that helps bring alive this verse from John 1. John 1, 14, the word talking about Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is fully observed in Jesus. The glory of God cannot be reduced to human understanding. And we will spend the rest of our lives trying to comprehend the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The glory of God is invaluable. Judas put a price tag on Jesus and quickly found out how wrong he was. There is no way to calculate or ascribe a value to the freedom Jesus achieved for us. The glory of God changes us. Just like Isaiah, the glory of God causes us to be aware of our need for a savior. And not only is Jesus the savior who made it possible for us to experience the glory of God, he's also committed to cleaning us up. I wanna look at two more portions of scripture. Are we okay with two more? Everything okay? Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, with the Ten Commandments, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. So Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him. And the people of Israel would see a radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil on over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. Now this is a portion of scripture that Paul the apostle would write about years later in 2 Corinthians. The old way, the laws etched in stone, which we just read is what Moses brought down the mountain, led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. 
for his face shone with the glory of God. Even though the brightness was already fading away, shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way? Now that the Holy Spirit is giving life, if the old way, which bring condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts were covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Now that portion of Scripture is, is packed. There's so much in there, and I certainly don't have uh, any time to sort of dig into any of that. But there's a few things I wanted to point out. And I'll go through these, and I want to be conscious of time. So I want to go through these. The first thing is, something helpful for us is expect greater. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way? We saw from Moses and the temple and Isaiah that there are huge moments. Paul knew about these moments, and yet he still says, you should expect far greater. These incredible moments of encounters with the glory of God, of having times in the presence of God, the instruction from Paul is expect greater than even those. Second thing I wanted to point out is be bold in faith. From 2 Corinthians, since the new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. And this boldness is not a confidence that we find in ourselves, but in Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We should have confidence in the truth and grace grace and truth that is alive and well in our lives, our confidence shifting from ourselves to Jesus, trusting His message is true, that His accomplishment on the cross is true, confident that He's including me despite my imperfections because of His grace. Third thing, embrace freedom. Embrace freedom. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, for the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from whatever caused us to fall short of the glory of God. Freedom to get cleaned up like Isaiah did. Embrace freedom. Fourth thing, reflect what you see. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Isaiah was changed after what he saw. Amazingly, if we take the glory of the Lord for granted, we can remain unchanged. But if we don't take it for granted, we value for it for what it is. We're amazed by the glory of God. It can transform our lives. Fifth thing, imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. We talked a lot about this last week, about Jesus being a teacher and a role model. That imitate Jesus. Let that shine through your life. Expect greater. 
Be bold in faith, embrace freedom, reflect what you see, and imitate Jesus. All right, a couple of questions for you. Hopefully you have a chance to write these down and reflect on these this week. Hopefully these are helpful to you. The first thing is, in what ways have you become indifferent to God's glory? In what ways have you become indifferent to God's glory? And this will always be the challenge for believers is to make sure that we don't become indifferent to His glory. We don't become indifferent to the things of God or the things of the kingdom. We're always in awe. We're always in amazement. We're always in wonder at how great He is. In what ways have you become indifferent to God's glory? Second question, what would change if you regularly experienced the glory of God? What would change if you regularly experienced the glory of God? God's glory is often described as His presence. As part of your life, do you regularly invite the Lord's presence in prayer time or in worship? And if we did, if we did this more often than we do now, what would change? What would change in our lives if we spent more time trying to engage and trying to embrace the presence of God in our lives? Romans 3.23, one of the first verses I read today. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now this isn't the end of what Paul says. It goes on, verse 24. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. The bad news is we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to be in right relationship with God. None of us deserve to be able to step into His presence. The good news is that God loves us so much, He overrides that. It's more important to God that we have a right relationship with Him. It's more important to God that we're able to have a repaired, restored, and whole healthy relationship with Him than it is for us to be lost for eternity. God loves us so much, He sent His Son to the cross. That's why this is a good news message. The bad news is very, very bad. The good news is much greater. The good news is that the Son went to the cross for you and for me. And as we just read, for all who believe this message and put their trust, their faith, and their confidence in Jesus as Lord can know a right relationship with God, both here on earth and into eternity. So I wanna ask everyone here, if you don't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. You may be here and you may have heard a message like this many, many times. You may have heard the good news about Jesus so many times you can't even keep count. You may have never heard it before, but you're here today. And maybe you're at that point where you've come to that point in the road in your life where you say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is who He says He is. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He went to the cross to pay a price for me that I could never, ever pay myself. And you're at that point and you're ready to make the decision to start following Him. And if that's you today, I would love to pray for you. And I promise, I give you my word, I'm not gonna embarrass anybody here. But if this is you today, and you'd say, Tom, you know what? I'm not in right relationship with God. God seems distant to me, He seems far away from me, but I wanna be close. I'd love to pray for you. So if this is you today with every eye, eye closed and every head bowed, just for privacy and discretion's sake, if this is you, could you just put your hand up just so I know who I'm praying for today? Amen, thank you. Anybody else? Wonderful, amen. Anybody else? Thank you, wonderful. 
Anybody else here, I promise I won't embarrass you, but when we all pray together, I wanna know who we're praying for. Anybody else here today? Online, you can just click that button that says, I raise my hand. Anybody else in the room that wants to be included in this prayer today? Amen, thank you, wonderful. Anybody else? Wonderful, amen. Come on, word of life, let's celebrate. People making the best decision possible today. And we pray this prayer at the end of every service. And I want to invite everybody here to pray along with me. But those of you that put your hand up a moment ago, and there's a number of you, I want you to pray this full of belief and full of confidence that a prayer like this starts to change things. Things start to look different after you pray a prayer like this. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate with people. Wonderful.